Our scripture this evening is found in Psalm uh, 119, verses 121 through 128. Psalm 119, 121 through 128. You know, I watch a lot of programs that deal with science and, and all of that, you know, on the Smithsonian Channel and the National Geographic Channel and 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 partly is because I've always been interested in that kind of stuff, but also I want to see what they are teaching, how, how they are answering questions that that we have uh, always had. And uh, one of the most contentious subjects, and uh, especially among those that tend to be more theologically liberal, is the actual existence of David and Solomon. There are people that do not believe that there ever was a man named David or David and that there was never a man named Solomon. When when Angie and I first came to Concord, I subscribed to a magazine called Biblical Archaeology Review. At the time, it was a wonderful magazine. A uh, great magazine that would help you to understand some of the archaeology that was being done and uncovering and these new digs and how it related to the Bible. And finally, they published an article David and Solomon never existed, that they were just myths. And I called them up and canceled my subscription, and they asked me why. And and I told them, I said, you know, th- th- this is insane uh, that, that you would do this, that, that you have very scant evidence from archaeology to make the assertions that you're making, and yet you have uh, the Bible that testifies throughout of the existence and the ministry of these men. And it seems to me that you need to remove the word biblical from the title of your magazine. And obviously they weren't real blessed with that. Uh, and and I, I was watching a show this afternoon, and, and the premise of this particular episode was, you know, Solomon and all of his riches and his mines, and they found this mine uh, down in Timnah, which is in the very southern part of the Negev. And, and those weren't gold mines, they were copper mines, and and they were saying that those mines didn't belong to Solomon, that they belonged to Edom, and, and the Bible got it all wrong. And, and I said, uh, you know, you've got this written record of, of what was happening in Solomon's life, and the only reason that you would not believe what this book says is because you don't want to believe what this book says. If you can say that the Bible was wrong about Solomon, then it's not much of a leap to say that the Bible was wrong about Jesus. And if the Bible was wrong about Jesus, then we're off the hook. We can do whatever we want to. Uh, and and that's their, their whole premise. I said all of that to say this, and that is that understanding only comes to us from the Word of God. Psalm 119, verses 121 through 128, and in honor of the reading of God's Word, let's stand, please. I have done justice and righteousness 
Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. Deal with your servant according to your loving kindness and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for they have broken your law. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much, and we thank you for the reading of your perfect and infallible word. And God, uh, we ask that as you illumine the heart and mind of the psalmist when you gave to him this perfect and infallible word, when you ministered in his life through your word, that you would give to us illumination and that you would give to us the understanding that you gave to the psalmist. Father, we love every word that proceeds from your mouth. We offer to you our love, our lives, and this prayer. And in through the name of Jesus, our risen Lord and Master, amen. My mother in her study has this cross-stitched, I don't know what you call it, a cross-stitched picture of Ziggy. Now, some of y'all may not remember Ziggy. Ziggy was a a popular cartoon back in the 70s and 80s, I believe it was. He's kind of bald guy. Uh, Ziggy was kind of a, a, a the penultimate pessimist, okay? Uh, he just was sure that everything was, was about to go wrong. And so this cross-stitch thing that my mom uh, has is, is it says, it's you and me against the world. And Ziggy says, and personally, I think we're going to get creamed, okay? That, that was Ziggy's take on, on the whole thing. And, and sometimes it's easy for us to feel that way. I mean, we get up in the morning, you know, we get up in the morning and like we step on, on something or we trip over something or we fall, you know, or, or, or we get in and we're out of coffee. I'm going back to bed if we're out of coffee, okay. Or, you know, the car won't start or there's a problem with the car. And, and we just feel like problem after problem is compounding. We look at the world in which we live, and, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. You know, that, that's one of the things. Here's kind of a free aside for you. The main difference between those that stand in the Calvinist, uh, Calvinist tradition and those that stand in the Arminian tradition, and, and Arminians are generally our, our, our Methodist friends. Most rural Methodists are more Calvinist than they are Arminians. But your larger, especially city uh, Methodist churches, are going to be very Arminian in their outlook. And the basic outlook of, of Calvinism uh, is where you start in Tulip, totally depraved. The humanity is totally depraved and we're getting worse. I mean, how can you not look at the world in which we live and, and, and affirm the truth of that statement? Arminians come at it from the exact opposite, and they say that humanity is basically and intrinsically good and getting better. Okay. Uh, for those of you that are Trekkies, 
Okay, theologically, Star Trek would be in the Arminian camp because they believe that through the right education, through the right conditions, that humanity can reach its full potential, that poverty and, and want and need and disease and all of that can be eliminated. But you and I go out into the world and, and, and man, we're, we're like the psalmist, right? I mean, if ever there was a guy that wanted to get it right, okay, he wants to get it right. I mean, in verse 121, I have done justice and righteousness, okay? Now, when we get to that verse in a moment, we'll see he's not claiming that I'm sinlessly perfected or sinlessly perfect. What he's claiming is that, Lord, I've gone all in with you. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm out there doing justice. I'm out there living a righteous life. And yet, and yet, they are pressing in hard on me. Every time I open my mouth, they're coming after me. And so, what can we do? When our circumstances don't seem to change, okay, notice that I qualified that, that our circumstances don't seem to change, and yet our oppressors, and yet the world continues to press in hard on us without restraint. What should we do? When our cries to God seem to go unanswered. We're going to talk about him here in a little bit, but how long has it been since you read the book of Job? Okay. Job falls into calamity pretty early. Okay. Chapters 1 and 2. Job is up to his neck. He has never gone through anything like this. And so God immediately comes alongside of him and says, Job, you got this. No, beloved. It was a long time before God came alongside Job. Now, Job never, or God never abandoned Job. Don't hear me saying that. But throughout the book of Job, we see Job struggling, as the psalmist is, to understand what's going on, to understand why he has done justice and righteousness, and yet all that seems to be happening in his life is oppression, bad things. In our text tonight, frustration and fear seem to be creeping into the psalmist's spirit. Now, he's already indicated to us back in verse 109 that he was or had been threatened, that he felt like his life was in danger. He felt like those that were after him were going to actually finish him off. He says, my life is continually in my hand yet I do not forget thy law. And in verse 126 of our text tonight, he's right there with the prophets. Remember the minor prophets that we studied before we got to Hosea? And their cry was the exact same thing. How long, O Lord, 
How long are you going to look at this? I, I never will forget, and, and I don't really agree with this sentiment, but Ruth Bell Graham, Billy Graham's wife, years and years ago said that if God doesn't destroy America, that he's going to owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. God doesn't owe anybody an apology. He never has, he never will. Okay? But we all, we all are at that place in our culture. We see all of this stuff going on. We see this, this complete disregard for the Word of God. We see this mocking of the Word of God. And we're right there with the, with the, with the prophet saying, How long, O oh God, is this going to go on? And, and we're right there with the psalmist. God, it is time for you to act because they have broken your law. How long are you going to let them get away with this before you do something about it? He's crying out to God for God to stay faithful to His Word, but deliverance did not seem to be on the horizon. You know, for those of you that have ever led young people in, in either mission groups or in scouting, Okay, you take them on a hike, and, and almost you know it's the same thing with a road trip. Are we there yet? How much further is it? And it's even worse on the way back. Okay, because they got up to the to wherever you were going, and, and they enjoyed the meal or whatever you went up there to see, and now they want to be back in the car on their way home. Okay. And they're expecting deliverance around every turn of that trail. And it doesn't come. And they get more and more restless and more and more frustrated. And that's the way the psalmist feels in, in what he's saying tonight. He's saying, God, I get up every, every morning. I get up every Every morning, and God, one of my main prayers is that you would act, that you would show yourself, that you would vindicate yourself and your word, and I'm not seeing it happen. God, it is time for you to act. What was God's verdict on this? Obviously, part of verse 126 would be what? The coming of the Messiah. Was Galatians 4 4 fulfilled uh, at the time of the psalmist? It was not. See, the time for God to act was, was, was several hundred years off into the future. When God said the fullness of time has arrived, and now it's time to send Messiah into my creation. Now, Here's the problem. Almost and probably every one of us in this room know someone who no longer considers themselves to be part of the faith. And one of the biggest reasons that I have found for people to abandon their faith is because they ask God to do something. And the answer was no. Or the answer was later. Or the answer was, I'm going to do something in a way different than the way you're asking. Okay? 
And they just said, I'm out. The psalmist, even though, even though God is not answering his prayer the way that he thinks it ought to be answered, verse 126, it is time for the Lord to act, for they have broken your law. And God, if you don't act, I'm out. No. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. Everything. The psalmist is being honest. He's being open with God. He's going to God and saying, God, from where I sit, from where I'm looking at this situation, it's time to do something about this. And yet, I'm going to trust you, O God. I'm going to trust as right everything that you do. You see, beloved, by definition, let's understand our theology. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, okay? Now, if you can affirm those four words, in the beginning, God, then everything else falls into place, okay? Everything else falls into place because God is sovereign, God is in control, and by definition, everything God does is right. God cannot do wrong. If God could do wrong, he would not be God. The moment God did something that was wrong, he would cease to be God if that were possible. And so the psalmist is saying, everything that you do, God, I don't understand why you're letting these guys break your commandments. But at the end of the day, I'm going to back off and I'm going to understand that you have a bigger purpose in this than I can see. Than I can understand. And God, I understand, I may not understand this until I join you in glory, and I'm okay with that. But Lord, in the meantime, in the meantime, until that day comes, God, I'm going to walk in all of your commandments. If I never see another answer to a single prayer that I pray, I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. And I'm going to continue to walk in them. He is teaching us that when it feels as if the enemy is winning, focus on the Lord because God will give us understanding in his word. Now, I haven't done a lot of studies on, on the letters. You know, you know, I haven't gone into what does Sonic mean. I mean, literally, I, I could take you places on the Internet where you could get an entire sermon just out of the letter I am, okay? We're not going to do that. I mean, you find the numerology of this and... and and because of the shape of the letter, I'll talk more about that in just a moment, it, it, there's all this mysticism. And that doesn't mean anything. But what I want you to understand is that the word ayin in Hebrew means I or to see. 
And the reason for that is that iron is made with two dots and then a little tail. Okay, it almost looks like two eyes on a stick. There's no letter in English that corresponds to iron. It's a, it's a silent letter in, in Hebrew. By extension, iron means to, to understand and to obey. Jeremiah 5.21 says this. Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Now, Jesus picks up on this theme from Jeremiah several times during his earthly ministry. And the psalmist is saying in this section of Ion, he's fully aware of what the word Ion means in Hebrew. And so he, he wants to bring all of that into as he's talking about our understanding in the Word. Verse 121. Now, again, the psalmist is not saying, I am all that in a bag of chips, okay? He is not saying, I stopped sinning years ago. I have never sinned in the last two years, two minutes, whatever. He's not making that claim. But what he's saying is that, Lord, I have done justice and righteousness, and those guys have not. Now, I know that we should never live our Christian life in comparison to someone else. Okay? Because it is really easy to continually lower the bar. Right? Okay? To say, well, I can't live the kind of life that Billy Graham did, but, you know, I, 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 I'm up there. Well, that, that standard's kind of hard, so I can't live that kind of life, so I, I'm right here. Well, I can't live that kind of life, so I'm down here. And we're continually lowering the bar until we find, and we, we find the, the, you know, the town drunk, and we say, well, at least I'm better than he is. Well, that doesn't prove anything. He's saying that I'm trying, God, with all of my heart to do what is right. What's important here is that the psalmist has gotten to the point in his walk with God that he can recognize God's activity in his life and see that his life is different from these guys over here who are not walking with God. Can we do that? Can we see the activity of God in our lives? I'm not saying can, can we go out and, and find the, the, you know, the worst person at work and say, well, yeah, I, I mean, my life is just so much better. But what I'm saying, beloved, is can we recognize, as the psalmist did, the activity of God in our lives? And here's the more important question. Can they? Can they recognize the activity of God in our lives? You know, there's an argument in philosophy and in logic, 
where I'm debating you and you have a good, strong position and I got nothing, okay? But a friend of mine told me that you smoked dope when you were a junior in college. And so I'm going to turn this whole thing into that, okay? Instead of trying to show that I'm different, I'm going to try to show or try to tear you down. And that's what these people are doing, okay? See, they recognize the activity of God in the psalmist's life. And so when you're getting pressure, when you're getting oppression from other people because of your stand on certain social issues, because you don't believe that homosexuality is normal, that you don't believe that, 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 that we are free to modify what the Bible says to suit our needs and to suit our wants, and others come after you because of that, okay, then that means that they have seen the activity of God in your life and they know that God is not working in their life at that level because they won't let him or they don't want him to. And so the psalmist is saying, I have done justice and righteousness. God, let me give you a much longer paraphrase of this. Y'all know that I would take just a few words and make it longer. God, I've done justice and righteousness, and the only way that I've been able to do that is because you have walked alongside of me all of the way. Please don't let me ever get to a point where you say, I've taken you as far as I can. You're going to have to go the rest of the way on your own. Isn't that what Jesus was saying to the, the, the apostles? The last thing he said before he ascended? Lo, I am with you always. Even to the end of the world. Jesus never sugarcoated what was going to happen to those guys. He never told them, you're just going to go out there and tell them about me. They're going to thank you, and, and, and man, you're going to have a great life and a great ministry. Jesus was open and honest about the oppression and the persecution that they were going to face as they carried the message of love into a godless and unloving world. And he said, you're not going to have to do this alone. Not only am I going to be with you always, but I have prayed and God is going to send the Holy Spirit into your life to be your constant companion. And so for us from verse 121, we can say God has not left us to our oppressors. See, the psalmist was able to call boldly upon God. Are you ready for this? Because he was living righteously. Okay? He was living righteously. You know, we talked about it this morning. If 
if I were to get stopped on McDonald Road and get a ticket, and somebody that has a long criminal record, well known to the police and the judicial system, gets stopped on McDonald Road and given a speeding ticket, and we both go to court, which one of us is the judge most likely to show mercy to? The one who's tried to live righteously. Now, I'm not puffing myself up. I'm just trying to help you understand that the psalmist is able to boldly go before God and, and, and make this request because he was living righteously. Now, the fact is, we can lie to ourselves. We can lie to others. But we cannot lie to God. He knows everything there is to know about us. Psalm 139, 1 through 4. <clears throat> oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Wait, isn't that a scary thought? Isn't that a scary thought? God, you have searched me and, and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, excuse me, O oh Lord, you know it all. Now, the psalmist knows this is true. <laughs> but he also knows that God loves him. He also knows that God loves those that, that are all in for him. And so he can then confidently go before God. Knowing that God knows everything there is to know about him. And that God will respond. He'd done nothing to deserve the abuse that was being heaped upon him. But he was being oppressed. See, when our circumstances do not change and difficulties continue, we need to persist in calling for God's mercy and help. With Jesus Christ as our advocate, we can continue crying out at any time for mercy. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Oh, amen. Amen. Ladies... What, what would y'all do if, if, if you were in the midst of giving birth and I came into the delivery room and took your hand and I said, you know, I know exactly how you feel. You go, no, you do not. <laughs> okay. You have no idea what this feels like. But see, Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, okay, I love the therefores. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, sometimes you behave yourself into a mess. Amen? (laughs) You behave yourself into a mess. And and you're ashamed to go to God and say, God, I've got myself in a mess. But how much better it would be if we would just go to God and say, God, I've got myself into a mess. You know about it. You knew it was coming. You knew that I was going to do it. You watched me do the whole thing. You knew the motives of my heart when I did it. You know the outcome that I was hoping for. And it wasn't a righteous outcome. And so, God, I just come before you with confidence to the throne of grace to receive your mercy and to take this away from me and to put me back on my feet. Do you understand that the only thing that keeps God from hearing our own prayers or our prayers is our own hearts? Psalm 66, 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. That's a pretty strong statement. If I'm flirting with with wickedness, if I'm seeing how close I can get to the line without crossing over, the Lord will not hear. Verse 122. Anybody here ever co-signed a loan? Pretty dangerous thing to do, okay? But do you understand that's exactly what the psalmist is asking God to do? God, I want you to co-sign a loan for my life. I want you to stand as a guarantee in my life. Okay, let's contextualize this. Y'all remember when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery? And, and, and they thought that he was dead. And they told Daddy, Joseph got eaten by a lion. And they went down to Egypt because there was a famine. Okay? How many of y'all think them boys was praying for God to remove that famine before it got that bad? Did God do it? He did not. Why? Because those boys needed to go down to Egypt. They needed to go down to Egypt to confront their sin. Okay? And so they went down to Egypt. And and they didn't recognize that it was Joseph, but Joseph recognized them. And he asked about Benjamin. He said, Is Benjamin still alive? His 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 natural brother. Okay? His only natural brother. From the same mama. And he says, Is Benjamin still alive? And and, you know, they said, oh, yeah, well, our father and Benjamin, we've got another one at home. And, and, and Joseph said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you have this food. But I want to see this Benjamin. Y'all got to leave somebody here. Okay? And so they go back and, and they say to, to Isaac or to Jacob, we got to go back down to Egypt, but we got to take Benjamin with us. And Jacob says, uh-uh, uh-uh, I've already lost Joseph. I don't know what you guys are up to, but I'm not going to put Benjamin on the line for this. And you remember what Judah did? 
Judas said, Dad, if anything happens to Benjamin, I and my family will stand in his place. We will be surety for the life of Benjamin. The psalmist is asking God to be surety for his servant for good. Now, let's carry this on into the New Testament. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is our surety. He stands before Almighty God. Do do, do you know that when you stand before Almighty God and the Lord Jesus is standing right alongside of you and God begins to talk about your sin and your head drops down, Jesus is going to reach over and pull your chin up and He's going to say, I stand for this one. Count their sin to my account. I am standing for surety for this one. And so the psalmist is asking God to personally guarantee that he is going to survive this ordeal. When our hearts are breaking, when we're afraid, when we're frustrated, or we sense that our ordeal may never end, we can pour out our hearts to God because he cares more about us than we'll ever comprehend. We struggle with that, but the Bible repeatedly affirms that truth. Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will those yahoos over there give me a hard time? Will the Smithsonian Channel, will National Geographic, will the American Atheist Association, will will all of these guys, will all of these theological liberals separate me from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. And now Paul goes through the entire universe. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Peter 5.10 After you have suffered for a little while. Have you ever noticed, you just go back to that example of the kids in the back of the car. You know, there's a word that my papa used to use, and I find myself using it a lot now uh, in regards to time. Papa, when are we going to be there? Directly. We'll be there directly. And have you ever noticed that directly to the speaker is usually, you know, a different time frame than the person that it got said to? You have suffered for a little while. The God of all grace who called you, who called you, don't leave that out. The God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen and establish you. Man, and all I got to do is suffer for a little while 
and God is going to become personally involved in my life and make this thing right. One more, Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. You see, beloved, this promise of God to be with us is not just a New Testament concept. We find it throughout the Bible. Verse 123. All right. Have you ever got yourself wore out from praying? I mean that you were praying almost as strongly as Jesus was praying his last night on earth. That you just had a lot on your heart and you were going and you felt like you had hold of the horns of the altar. And you were just pouring out your, your, your heart before God. And you got up from that thing and you were just, whew, I have slapped wore out. My eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. The psalmist is saying, God, I'm, I'm worn out, I'm tired. And although he was weary of waiting, he never gave up on God. This waiting expectation shows us, listen to me, that faith comes before experience. You know, I hear that jumping out of a perfectly functional airplane is an amazing experience. But it's something I'm never going to experience because I don't have the faith to trust a millimeter thick piece of silk to keep me from crashing into the ground. Okay? Faith comes before experience. Now, if that plane's not going to land, now I've got the faith. I'm going to get out. But... The point that I'm making is that faith comes before experience. See, beloved, we got it all wrong. We got it all wrong. We we think in salvation that people are going to experience salvation before they exercise faith. We believe that we're going to experience the blessing of God before we have faith in the blessing of God. We believe that God's going to get us on the other side of the Red Sea, that we're going to experience that before we have faith that He's going to part the water to do it. Faith comes before the experience. And the psalmist is willing to wait for God's salvation as long as it takes. When our prayers seem to not be answered, we need to continue to pray. First John 5:14 says this, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us. Y'all remember why he doesn't hear us James 4:3? I don't know if, if if you thought I okay, I didn't know. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasure. Okay, there's a sermon there. I'll let it go. Verses 124 and 125. 
In verses 124 and 125, the psalmist is telling us, God, I want to be led deeper into your word. God, I want you, listen to the prayer that he's praying. God, I want you through this pain that is in my life to lead me deeper into your word and into your love. Now, how do we generally pray? God, I want this pain in my life gone, and I want it gone now. And the psalmist is saying, God, deal with me according to your loving kindness. God, if this pain has to go on for me to to be drawn deeper into your word, then amen, let this pain go on. But God, if there's a way that you can take this pain away and deal with me according to your loving kindness and teach me your statutes, I am your servant. Help me to understand so that I may know your testimonies. Verses 126 through 128. The psalmist's final plea is for God or for God to execute justice against the evildoers. You know, we live in a wicked day. And you know, I'm an American. I was angry. I was just as angry as you were after the events of 9-11. And you know, I wanted to pray, God, take that man out. I found it very hard to pray, God, would you send a believer into that man's life to show him your grace and your love and your mercy. The psalmist is saying it's time. God, it's time to act. I don't know what that looks like. But God, I want you to act in a way that your justice is carried out. We want to hate those that come after us. Matthew 5, 44, Jesus is pretty clear on this. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. And then Jesus also taught us that it's not about us, Matthew 6.10. It's about God. Your kingdom come. Not my kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, beloved, the psalmist leads us to the same place that Jesus led us to. And we know that this is a prayer that's not going to be answered until Christ returns and destroys his enemies. But as we pray for that day to come, we must also do everything we can to win people to Christ before it's too late for all eternity. Because that is how we show that we have understanding in the Word of God.